I'll read a couple of verses for us here this morning to focus our hearts on God and His greatness and His wisdom. Uh, listen as I, as I read here from Matthew 28. These are words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The second verse we're going to read is from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I want to pray this morning for our brother, Mr. Jim Ellis, and his message. And so pray with me. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning. And we confess that you are glorious and you are mighty and you are wise beyond what we can fathom. We thank you for your love that you have poured out on us and that you have shown us through your son and his perfection and his completion as we considered it this morning. And we thank you for your continual guidance and comfort and and leading of your spirit that you've sent to be with us and for your presence. Father, this is a great mystery. We know you are one that there is one God eternal, and you are three persons. And as we consider this this morning, we confess we, we cannot put it all together. But as we, uh, as we plumb the depths of who you are, it awakens our heart more and more to your glory. We pray for our brother this morning and his words, that, that they would be your words, and that you would encourage us uh, and build us up by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Good morning and welcome to the teaching hour at Community Bible Chapel. Glad you're here. Uh, the verses that uh, Patrick read, I'd just like to refer to those quickly. In the first one, Matthew 28:19, we read, "Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, all nations, baptizing them in the name Stop there for a minute. In the name, singular. Now, we might have expected them to say something like, in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the Lord God, or perhaps in the name of the one true God, but he doesn't. He says, in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Friends, in giving the Great Commission and this baptismal formula, we are told that the New Testament name of God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm not going to prove the doctrine of the Trinity or the deity of Christ. I'm taking these as givens. But what I am going to attempt to do is put some finer points on the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the person of Christ that are hopefully edifying to the body and honoring to God. 
Therefore, this will take the form more of a theology class than anything else. And I'll be heavily dependent on the slides. They are my script. And so feel free to get up and move toward the center if you want to. It won't bother me if you're moving around to get a better look at the slides. Understanding the Trinity is something that uh, is not fully comprehended in evangelicalism today. There was a poll taken by uh, Lifeway Research for Ligonier Ministries several years ago, a poll of professing evangelicals. Now, I'm not sure how they describe themselves as professing evangelicals, but at a minimum it has to be that the Bible is the Word of God, that personal faith in Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary for salvation, etc., etc. So, so there has to be some content there for someone to say, I'm an evangelical. Well, here's the results of that survey. 96% of professing evangelicals said they believe in the Trinity. Well, that's good. I'm not sure about 4%, but (laughs) 96%, that's passing. (laughs) But let's go on. 88% said they believe Jesus is fully God and fully man. Well, we're losing people. 22% said that God the Father was more divine than Jesus, and 9% weren't sure. 16% said that Jesus was the first creature created by God, while an additional 11% weren't sure. And finally, 51% said that the Holy Spirit was a force, not a person. And an additional 7% weren't sure. That's almost 60% had no real clue about the person of the Holy Spirit as part of the doctrine of the Trinity. 96% said they believed the Trinity. 60% said the Holy Spirit was a force, not a person. So there's obviously some misunderstandings evident among professing evangelicals. The doctrine is often treated as an appendage to the Christian life and faith rather than something significant and integral. But the reason to study the Trinity is much more, is much deeper and more personal than memorizing a set of statements to define it. In other words, if they had memorized a set of statements that would have answered all of those questions correctly, There's much more depth and personal significance of the Trinity than just memorizing those facts. So the significance of the Trinity is, I think, threefold. First, it informs the gospel. And when I say informs, I mean it gives substance to the gospel. Secondly, it shapes our prayers. And thirdly, it grounds our worship. Let me just take a moment to kind of explain what I'm saying there. Because this makes the Trinity more personal and involved in our lives when we can see the significance in this fashion. The Trinity is necessary for for a coherent understanding of the gospel and redemption. Of course, we know the Father sends the Son to offer a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath and extend the Father's mercy to repentant sinners. 
the incarnate Son is able to provide this atonement because He is both God and man. The God-man conquers death and sin through His glorious resurrection from the dead, and the Holy Spirit is directly responsible for uniting us with Christ, our new birth, and the believer's life journey of sanctification. The Trinity also shapes our prayers. Praying is entering into a divine dialogue with our triune God. And there seems to me that there is a double movement to it. For God gives himself to us through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And we respond with our praise, confession, and petitions made in the Spirit through the Son to the Father. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't pray specifically to Jesus or the Spirit. I'm just saying that the normal order is kind of flow upward from what has flowed downward. And Jesus is the means by which we have access to the Father so that we might even pray. Our high priest gives us access to God only through him may we, have, may we boldly approach the throne of grace as it says in Hebrews chapter 4. And when we pray in the Spirit, we pray past ourselves. We pray beyond ourselves. For the Scriptures tell us that we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And then thirdly, the Trinity grounds our worship. Both the ground of worship and the proper expression of worship are tied necessarily to the oneness and threeness of God. Worship finds its necessary grounding in God himself, in his being, in his nature, in his character. As we understand his being, nature, and character more fully, we may worship him with eyes that have been with, with a gaze that has been raised up in faith so that we may apprehend and worship our triune God. Worship finds its rightful expression in response to that revelation of the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In worship, our triune God desires to draw us into communion with Him. And isn't that true? Through the person of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are washed in the blood. Through the Spirit, we are united to him and can receive the love of the Father. We are in communion with the triune God. That should motivate and be the ground for our worship. Just another couple of words. The Bible describes the existence of one true God, yet attributes the characteristics of this God to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The biblical evidence maintains the singularity of God as well as the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit individually. The doctrine of the Trinity, even though the word is not used in Scripture, is not a creative whim. It is the teaching of Scripture, and it's been formalized by the church fathers in the ecumenical creeds, which we will talk about 
The Trinity accounts for and upholds the deity of Christ, first and most importantly. All deviations from historical Trinitarianism have com compromised the divine, eternal divine nature of Jesus Christ. It's really that simple. In these deviations, Christ is either demoted, subordinated, or subjugated as a lesser being. When the full deity of Jesus Christ is denied, the Trinity is lost or abandoned. So let's move now just to a brief definition of the Trinity. You will all recognize these words, at least most of them. There is but one God. Christianity is thoroughly monotheistic. This one God eternally subsists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God. But most things that I've read, it stops there with this uh, concise definition. I, I suggest and hope to show you why we need to say at least something in the definition of the Trinity that relates to the persons within that trinity. And that is, we've spoken of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God. The Father is unbegotten. The Scriptures teach us that. The Son is eternally begotten. And the Spirit eternally proceeds from both the Father and the Son. That tells us something about the relations of these persons within the Trinity. And I think that's crucial to a definition of the Trinity. Now, I think I need to take time to address the use of the word person when we talk about the persons of the Trinity. In a sense, it's an imperfect word to denote the distinctions within the Godhead because the way we think of a person is not really the way the word person is used with respect to God and the Trinity. Let me tell you why. And you'll recognize that in our way of thinking, a person is a distinct individual being, right? I'm a being, I'm a human being. Charlie's a human being. We're distinct individual <laughs> beings. And every person is a distinct individual with his own personalized human nature, his own will. Right? But in God, but in God, there are not three beings. There are not three separate beings alongside or separate from one another in this God. And that points to the way in which we need to understand there's a difference in how you use the word person with regard to our, with regard to our creaturely understanding of persons and with regard to what person means when referring to the Trinity. Our triune God is one being, not three beings. He's one being with one divine nature. Not three natures, one nature, one essence, one mind, and one will. 
So whatever you say about the persons of the Trinity, this must be foundational. There, now, now we, we have to admit, and we have to try and explain to some degree, that there are three manners of subsistence, or three manners of existence. But each person in the Trinity, each person in the Trinity is of the one divine substance and nature. Not three natures. Not three substances. They are of the one divine substance and nature, which is God. We do see personal self-distinctions within the Trinity indicating relations. Yet they, the persons of the Trinity, are generically and numerically one divine being. And, and that, that's the big point here in these last couple of slides. Because we tend to think of three beings. That's not right. It's doing a disservice to the doctrine of the Trinity. Self-distinctions in the divine being are evident as they refer to each other as I and you and he. Yet there is only one God. For example, in John chapter 15, verse 26, Christ says, but when the helper comes, the helper, that's somebody else, whom I will send to you from the Father, that's somebody else, then he tells us who this helper is. It's the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He, the Spirit of truth, will bear witness about me. So it's obvious, and you see this in a number of places in Scripture, especially John 17, John 15, other places. We see these self-distinctions. But yet there is only one God. Now, clarification and formalization of the early church's Trinitarian theology was required by interaction with heretical ideas popping up in various places. Heretical teachings threatened the true nature of God and Jesus Christ, essential to the faithful articulation of the gospel. But the ability in those early years of the church to effectively combat heretical teaching was inhibited by the political environment. And what I mean is, is if you stop and think about it, from the time of Nero, the emperor, Roman Emperor Nero, in 60-something A.D., for the next 250 years, Christianity was outlawed. It was functionally illegal. Now, the persecution of Christians, there was an ebb and a flow, and there was periods where it was worse than others, uh, which was really dependent on the local Roman leaders throughout the empire. But what I'm trying to suggest is the church was operating in what we might call a covert mode. Yes, they could send letters to other churches. Yes, they could secretly have house meetings. Yes, they could secretly meet with other local churches nearby. But there was really a stifling of the open flow of communication between the churches. 
So when these little errant teachings popped up, one, one uh, local bishop may send a letter to another and say, hey, this guy over here, look what he's saying. This ain't right. And so that, that could be going on, but until Constantine issued the Edict of Milan in 313 A.D., Christianity was a covert operation. Now, put that date in your head. 313 A.D., Christianity was legalized. It was endorsed by the emperor. And the free flow of information began to happen. And within, 20, within 12 years of that Edict of Milan, in 325 A.D., there was an ecumenical council called where Constantine called bishops representing the church worldwide, or at least in their worldwide to talk about some of these issues and settle them from an orthodox standpoint. So I'm going to take a minute to talk about these heresies for a couple of reasons. I don't want this to be boring, but I think it's important to see what the errors maintained or what the errors suggested so that you can see what the church was doing at the Council of Nicaea, which we will get to, and help you see the difference between a, an orthodox understanding and an errant understanding. So just briefly, you should be familiar with some degree to Gnosticism. Uh, the basic Gnostic teaching was that matter is either evil or it doesn't really exist. It's from the Greek word gnosis meaning knowledge. Those teaching it professed a special hidden or higher knowledge of transcendence arrived by an internal intuitive experiential means. Come with us, let us teach you, we'll lead you into a higher knowledge where you can spiritually thrive. The chief denial, however, was that the incarnation of the Son of God is denied. Why? Because in this view, the Logos could not be united to human flesh, matter, because matter is evil, or it doesn't exist. It was the earliest heresy to be condemned. I meant to mention they did develop their own version of the scriptures too, which was all, all the worse. But you can see the, the uh, writings in the New Testament actually sp- are specifically addressing what we would call an incipient or the beginnings of Gnosticism. And see, see if you can catch the emphasis here. In John 1.14, John emphasizes the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in John, 1 John 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Because the Gnostics were saying, the Son of God could not take on flesh. He did not come in the flesh. He may appear to have flesh, but he did not come in the flesh. And then Paul in 1 Timothy 6.20 
says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have departed from the faith. So we see this, this heresy being addressed right in the scriptures. The next major departure is called monarchianism from the Greek word indicating monarch, the monarchy of a single sovereign. The monarchianists fiercely sought to protect monotheism, which is a noble task. But they insisted that God was one in essence and one in personhood. They couldn't accept the idea of more than one person in the Godhead. They just could not see it, could not accept it, no matter what the scripture said. They balked at it. Now, monarchianism manifested itself in a couple of different forms called adoptionism and modalism. And I'm going to just talk briefly about these so you'll see, see what's being said and what the church had to correct. Adoptionism emphasized that God is one being and one person, consistent with the monarchianists. He's only one person. And it teaches that Jesus was born as any other human. But he was judged righteous enough to be adopted as God's son and granted a portion of the divine nature. For example, they might see, for example, in the baptism of Jesus, which is another great text on the Trinity, but they may use that to say, you see, here is when the human Jesus Christ was granted a portion of the divine nature so that he could minister for God. But he is not God. God adopted him. This teaching also tended, like some in our earlier <laughs> survey, to view the Holy Spirit not as a person, for there's only one person in the Godhead, but the Holy Spirit is therefore our divine force or our divine presence, the divine presence of God, but God is still just one person. Related to this is modalism, which is probably more prevalent, more prevalent in the church today than we might realize, because this is what it says. God is one being, monotheistic, and again, one person. The Father and Son and Spirit are but three modes of revelation or three forms of revelation. Sometimes God manifests himself to us as Father, sometimes as Son, sometimes as the Spirit. But it's only one person doing that. Also known as Sabellianism, which is kind of a chronological modalism, suggested that the Old Testament father became the New Testament son and then became the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But it's all one person, not three persons. In modalism, God is one divine person. The Father, Son, and Spirit are different manifestations of the one divine person, like God putting on different masks. 
But in Orthodox Christianity, we have one divine being who exists in three persons. Arianism, we take, need to take a moment to talk about because it was a significant early erroneous teaching in the church. Arius of Alexander, circa 310, he rejected modalism, but he was influenced by adoptionism. He taught that the Father alone is without a beginning. Jesus was not actually the same as God, but he was like God in that he was an entity created by God in order that he might create the world. Arius famously made this statement. Remember this statement. There was a time when the Son was not. That was his argument. There was a time when the Son was not. Do you get the impact of what he's saying there? In his view, Christ is neither God nor is he man, but must be something in between. There is God, there is the Son who had a beginning, and then there is the rest of creation. This was a stubborn heresy which was originally rejected at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Arianism continued in the Eastern churches with many adherents. It continued to have proponents for another half century spawning variations of itself. If you've ever heard of Athanasius, Athanasius Contramunda, Athanasius against the world, he rose up as the chief opponent to Arianism and carried the day in his arguments for the orthodox understanding of the Trinity. Arianism was more emphatically rejected at the Council of Constantinople in 381 A.D. So we had the Council of Nicaea, 325, where there was initial condemnation and then more emphatically rejected at the Council of Constantinople in 381. Now, <clears throat> the reason I wanted to take time to go over that is because the heresies continue today. Gnosticism is alive and well in Christian science, religious science, the New Age movement, and another, a number of Eastern groups. Adoptionism, right? Jesus was a man. He was adopted. Adoptionism is alive and well in Mormonism. That may be the least of their heresies. And Unitarianism. Unitarians mean Unitarian, not tr Trinitarian. They, their name says, I'm not Trinitarian. Modalism. You will find alive and well in the United Pentecostals, especially the Jesus-only Pentecostals. You will find them in Oneness Pentecostals like uh, T.D. Jakes. You will find it in the local church which was handed down to Witness Lee by Watchman Nee, and Witness Lee ruined, ruined that church. Arianism 
There was a time when the Son was not, is alive and well in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Christadelphianism, which I'm personally not too familiar with, and Unitarianism in its various denominations. So, by, by at least having some understanding of what these heresies are and where they may be, may be found today, provides the ground necessary, I think, necessary to discern heretical or unorthodox teaching especially in today's postmodern environment. The doctrine of the Trinity was first formalized by the church at the Council of Nicaea, as we have mentioned. The focus, again, was on correcting erroneous teaching, and it was later revised and expanded as a result of the Council of Constantinople in 381 A.D. The Nicene Creed used today is the revised version of 381 A.D., And I'd like for us just to take a moment to read it. As we read it, see if you can kind of discern where it's shutting down some of those erroneous teachings. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. He is the same substance as the Father by whom also all things were made. Who for us and our salvation came down from heaven was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, and to underscore his life as man on earth, the creed points out he was crucified, the historical validity of this, he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father, from thence he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And finally, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. When the prophets spoke, it was the Holy Spirit speaking. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Catholic with a little c. We're not talking about Romanism. We acknowledge one baptism for remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That was the first formal statement of the Trinity in the church at 325 A.D. And the creed says, the one God subsists in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three are distinguished by their relations of origin. They are distinguished by the fact that the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds from both. Those are the eternal 
relations of origin that distinguish the persons of the Trinity. And the Creed specifies that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together are to be worshipped and glorified. Now, obviously, we cannot completely comprehend it or fully plumb the depths of the Trinity. Scripture tells us, as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God has communicated with man truly, but not exhaustively. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, and so on. It's unfathomable, but knowable. The doctrine of the Trinity is part of the revelation of God who is infinite to those who are finite. The Trinity remains, ultimately, a mystery. However, the biblical evidence presents us with a triune God And if Scripture teaches it, we can know it is true even if we cannot fully comprehend it. So as we continue to talk about the Trinity next week, I want to take a moment to talk about the doctrine of God. I'm talking about a a subject that, that it would take weeks to teach on. But we need to understand this. When the fathers in these councils formulated or tried to state according to Scripture without going beyond Scripture how we can understand the triunity of this God, they had as their framework and presupposition the doctrine of God. For example, as we have pointed out, God is one. We cannot state or understand the Trinity in a way that would contradict that. That's what I'm saying by the fact that these are these form a framework and the presuppositions of the Trinity. God is incomprehensible. We just talked about that. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. God is immutable means God can't change. He can't change. God is the one perfect spiritual being. Why can't God change? Because he's perfect. If he changes in any way, he either becomes more perfect or less perfect. But perfect is a superlative. You can't become more perfect. You can become more nearly perfect, but not more perfect. But God's already perfect. He can't change. God is transcendent. He's totally other. And by that I mean we must be careful that we maintain the distinction between the creator and the creature. We think creaturely. We think in creaturely terms, using creaturely words, because that's, that's how we are. But when we speak of God, we, have to, we, we can't speak of God univocally We can't say a word about God and say love in God is just exactly like our love. His love transcends the creaturely love. We we can't speak about God equivocally. We can only speak about God 
by the analogy of human language as it reveals to us something about God that is more perfect and different in him. He's totally transcendent. God's being is simple. He is not composed of parts. But how can you talk about the Trinity with three persons unless you're talking about parts? That's the point. You can't. There are no parts in God. God is not made up of a composition of things not himself. I mean, you can't take a a composition of things that are not God and put them together and have God. What would you need if you did that? Well, you need a composer who put those things together. God is a simple being. We're simple-minded. He's a simple being. And that's a doctrine that needs to be explained. It's a doctrine that's not familiar to people. But it's a doctrine that the church fathers understood and they wanted to state and defend and declare the Trinity in a way that did not violate the simplicity of God. And finally, God is impassable. And what that means is he doesn't suffer or he's not affected by passions. We're affected by passions. What this is saying is that God is not changed or is not subject to his reaction to his creatures. He knows everything from the beginning. He is beyond time. God cannot experience succession in his person. Time is defined by succession. And when, when the scripture talks about things like God relenting, it's not talking about God changing in his nature or in his will or in his plan. He's talking about the change with regard to the creature in relation to God. In Nineveh, God didn't change his mind. In Nineveh, Nineveh changed their mind and therefore experienced God's blessings, which he always has for those that are turned to him. There was no change in God. Oh, I'm going too far. But let me just suggest, God is impassable. That's something that, that would be valuable to, be, to teach on, and he does not suffer. The last slide for today is uh, really can be treated as a sidebar. Uh, what I'm using this slide for is to introduce some terminology which we will follow up with next week, but I hope it just gives you a way of thinking that may be a little different than what, what you normally think of. When addressing what God is, when addressing what God is, in his essence and being, we are speaking Ontologically. Ontology is the study of being. When we speak about God's being, what he is in himself, and I'm using there the Latin phrase ad intra, what he is internal to himself, we are speaking ontologically. That's what God is. Ontologically, the three persons of the Trinity are equally divine, holy, unchanging, sharing one essence in being. That's what God 
That's how we are to understand God in himself. That's how we are to think of God ad intra, internally. The three persons are equally magnificent, equally authoritative. They share the same will. They share the same essence. That's the ontological trinity. Now, when addressing what God does, not what he is, but what he does in regard to creation, we are speaking of his operations in the economy. And what I, I want to introduce this term, because if you do any reading on the Trinity, you're going to see terms like ad intra, ad extra, ontological, economical. You're going to see these words. I just wanted you to get a general idea of what it's, what it's getting to. When we're speaking of the operations of God in the economy, uh, the economy comes from the Greek word economikos, which means the administration. In other words, this word is used in Ephesians 1.10 where, where uh, uh, Paul is talking about in the administration of the fullness of time, in the economy of the fullness of time. That's essentially what we're, what we're meaning when we say this. It can also be referred to as a managing a household. Remember when people used to take home economics? That was how to manage a household. <laughs> well, this is how God manages the operations in the world. How the Father, the Son, and the Spirit relate to creation and the world, especially in the work of redemption. So we can speak about God ad intra, internal to himself, speaking ontologically, or we can speak about what God does, add extra, external to himself in the world. And we will see how those terms can be helpful next week as we continue this study. Let's close in prayer. Glory be to you, O Lord, our Creator. Glory be to you, Jesus, our Redeemer. Glory be to you, Holy Spirit, our sanctifier, guide, and comforter. All love, all glory be the high and undivided Trinity, whose deeds are inseparable and whose worldwide rule is forever. To you and you alone and to your Son and to the Holy Spirit be glory forever and ever. Amen.